Dale congregation, whom many of us know. Uh, he he uh, has been there since 1997 as a minister and since 2009 as an elder. Brother Owens is a 1994 graduate of Memphis School of Preaching and a 2001 graduate of Amherst University. Uh, joined here tonight with his wife, and we're grateful once again to have him uh, here to share God's word with us. He's going to continue our summer series by presenting a lesson on the fruit of self-control. So we are blessed to have Brother Owens here this evening. With that, let us go to God in prayer as we get started, as we begin our service this evening. Our Father in heaven, it's an honor to approach you. It's an honor to gather here in a time where we can sing praise to you and where we can study your word. And it is our prayer that the time we devote to you this evening will be uh, uplifting and it will be, in, and it will be uh, beneficial to us. Help us, Lord, to uh, approach this time of study with open minds and open hearts. Help us to uh, attentively listen and absorb uh, the message that's being presented from your word. And, and help us, Lord, to apply it to our lives and to seek to uh, change where we need to change and to grow where we need to grow and to uh, be more committed where we need to be more committed. We ask for your blessings on Brother Owens tonight as he uh, communicates this message to us, as he breaks open the bread of life to us. May you bless him, and may, uh, may, may, may this be a night where we can all glean from the message that he presents. Lord, as we gather here, there are many on our hearts and prayers that we are mindful of. We're mindful of Larry Klenek's mother right now and, and the difficulties she's dealing with, the issues of health that she has. We lift her up to you. We're mindful also of Bruce Winslet's mother and this uh, tragic situation that she's enduring right now. It is our prayer that uh, whatever treatments she's receiving might be effective. And we, we ask for your blessings on Bruce as he's there with her but really can't see her and and uh, be with them during this difficult time, and, and, and please, please bring healing. Lord, we are also mindful of Quandra and Alicia and AJ, and, and we're mindful of that whole family. Uh, Lord, we know that uh, this weekend is not going to be easy, and we just pray that uh, you be with them in a special way, uh, not just this weekend, but as they transition through life and, and, and deal with this, this horrible loss. And Lord, uh, help us to, to honor Anthony well this weekend and, and help us as a family to hold up this family during their time of loss. Lord, we, uh, we thank you so much for sending your son to die for us, and we're thankful that we can have hope of an eternity with you in heaven. May we never take for granted what he did for us, and Lord, may we live a life worthy of the calling. We love you, Lord, and it is through the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. The Bible is the greatest book in the world. It just is. It is actually also the greatest picture book in the world, although there are no pictures in the Bible. What the Bible does do, though, is paint for us wonderful word pictures. God, in his infinite wisdom, reveals himself to us, and through what he reveals, we can actually see what he wants us to understand. As we open up the Bible, there is a picture drawn for us in Genesis 1 and 2. You read those two chapters of the Bible, and the picture is framed in your mind that God is the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. You'd be hard-pressed to read those chapters and come away with any other picture in your mind. No one else is in control. No one else is in charge. 
God is. That picture is almost immediately begins to be drawn in the first verse. In the beginning, God, where are you in that picture? Where are you in that verse? Where's anybody in that verse? In the beginning, God. And everything that flows from the rest of that chapter and in the chapter two focuses our attention to him. By the end of that chapter, we will read a lot of, and God said, and God said, and God made, and God created, and God said, and God created, and God made. 32 verses, 31 times, God. The picture is drawn. Everything and everybody is subject to God. That's Genesis 1 and 2. You don't read the Bible before you start seeing the pictures. When you get to chapter 3, there's another picture. Sin is introduced into the world. And when the sad scene of sin is introduced to humanity and into our world, there is another picture right in there. Actually, I missed the picture. I'm sorry. Genesis 2 reveals to us the picture of the home. I missed that one. Genesis 2, 18 to 25, you are immediately drawn a picture of what a home looks like. It's a man and it's a woman. It's marriage for life. Where would we get such an idea? God just etch-a-sketched it for us in Genesis chapter 2. Everybody can see it. When we get to chapter 3, sin enters into the world and you begin to see how sad a picture that is. And as God begins to address Adam and Eve and he begins to question them, there is a picture within the picture. And that picture that we see secondarily is our topic tonight. The picture of self-control is brought into focus in Genesis chapter 3. Because in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sin, God approaches them and begins to ask them a series of questions. And by these questions and God's subsequent answers and decisions and his actions, we began to see the picture of self-control. Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 6, they sin. Genesis 3, 7, they hear the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hide themselves. By verse number 9, God is asking Adam questions like, where are you? Have you ever read that section of scripture and thought for just a second that Adam didn't have to answer? Did you ever get the impression that Adam was going to say, I don't have to be accountable to you. You can't tell me what to do. I'm the boss of me. Did you ever get a sense like that? Or were you very clear that when God said, where are you? Adam would soon be answering. And he did. And God followed up with, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat of? And even through Adam's answers, you begin to understand very quickly that Adam not only is going to answer, Adam is going to submit to whatever follows. Adam tries to blame Eve, and he says, the woman you gave to me, she, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. But you'll notice the last phrase. She gave me of the tree and... I did eat. So you admit it. Yes, he did admit it. He didn't have much of a choice. He submitted and he admitted. And then when he blamed Eve after his admission, God turned to Eve and said, what have you done? Is she going to answer? Oh, she's going to answer. Why? Because Genesis 3 follows chapters 1 and 2. And what was the picture in 1 and 2? God is the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. 
and everything and everyone submits to him. And so when God asks you what you have done, you will be answering. And what is it that God is driving home? You are responsible. You are in control. In fact, God punished everybody involved in Genesis chapter 3. And by the time we end this chapter, the picture is painted for us. And there are several pixels and pictures and points within the picture. Number one is God will call us into account for our actions. There is no human being living that can get around that. God will call you into account. But not only that, God will hold you responsible. He will hold us individually and personally responsible for our actions. Another thing that's true is God will not allow us to blame someone else for what we have done. God will use his word as the means of judgment. The question to Adam was, did you eat of the tree that I commanded you not to eat of? When God calls you into question, what will he use as the basis of judgment? His word. John says as much in John 12, 48, Jesus said, he that rejected me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Another piece of this picture is God will punish us for our actions. In the end, we will answer and we will accept the punishment. Well, that's the picture of Genesis 3. It's loud, it's clear, it's vivid, and it precisely teaches the need for self-control. Another word for self-control is the word temperance. In the New Testament, two writers take up the discussion, both Peter and Paul, and Peter says we are to add it to our faith. And so you began with faith and all of these other things flow out of that faith. That's what Peter says. Temperance is one of those things. The Apostle Paul labels it as a fruit of the Spirit, one of at least the fruit of the Spirit. And this is a portion of that. It is just as the word suggests. It is controlling yourself. And quite honestly, I'm of the mind that this is probably the biggest challenge we will have in our lives. It's not the economy, it's not the virus, it's not the government, it's not, no. Probably the biggest challenge is the person that looks back at you in the mirror every single morning. That person needs to be controlled. Who's going to do it? Well, you are. How are you doing at it? It probably is the biggest challenge we face every single day. In an ultimate sense, everything relates back to self-control. Everything we do, everything we say, every thought we have relates back to this. And since God won't force us to obey him, and Satan can't make us disobey God and obey him, well, that leaves just us totally responsible for what we do and think and say. We have the great privilege and the absolute responsibility of exercising self-control. Tonight, I'd like to share with you a couple of examples of those who practice self-control. Look at some who didn't and what happened as a result, and time permitting, we'll talk about some ways that we would suggest you can implement this attribute in your life. I'm sure it's there. We'll try to be as practical as we can. Number one, 
a lesson from those who practiced it. One of the people that stand out in Scripture as a person who practiced great self-control would be Joseph. Joseph, in the book of Genesis, you'll find him about verse 37, really where it begins in earnest to talk about him. He kind of takes up the last portion of the book, Genesis 37 to 50, really focuses on Joseph. Coincidentally, if you're reading through the book of Genesis, you're just going to march through this series of chapters with six individuals, each one moving along the mystery of God and playing a part. It will begin with Adam in the first five chapters, Noah from about 6 to 11, Abraham from 12 to 25, Isaac 26 to 30, Jacob from 31 to 36, and then Joseph, which is where we find ourselves, 37 to 50. Those six men are going to march us all the way through the book of Genesis, take us right up to the Exodus. It's this last man in that six that we talk about for just a moment. Joseph was loved by his father. The Bible says as much in Genesis 37 and verse 3. In fact, he was loved so much he was loved beyond and above his brothers. The verse says, now Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors, a coat of many colors. Jacob loved Joseph. Here's the point. Joseph couldn't control that. Joseph was not in control of his father's love. His father was. But Joseph was the recipient of it. Now, as a result of Jacob loving Joseph more than the rest of his brothers, in Genesis 37 and verse 4, the Bible says this, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Well, hate was their choice. It's just like love. Jacob chose to love Joseph more than his brothers, and his brothers told, chose to hate Joseph because of his father's love. And Joseph couldn't do a thing about either one. Joseph is not responsible for his father's actions. His father is. Joseph is not responsible for his brother's actions. His brothers are. And here is Joseph being loved and hated at the same time by his own family. Joseph couldn't control Miss Potiphar's lust. Well, that's her responsibility. Genesis 39 and verse number 7. After a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Joseph couldn't control others. Some loved him, some hated him, some lusted after him. Joseph couldn't control many of the things that happened to him. They were done by other people. His brothers plotted against him, 37, 18. His brothers planned to kill him, and all but two of them were okay with that. Instead, they sold him into slavery. Potiphar put him into prison because of his wife's lie. And through it all, Joseph exercised self-control. Joseph never hated his brothers in return. Joseph must have loved his father, but he certainly didn't love him more than or accentuate that love like his father had done toward him. Joseph didn't seek revenge on Miss Potiphar, on Potiphar, or on anybody. In fact, when given a, a position and, and the, uh, the ability to do it, Genesis 50, 15 to 20, Joseph says, I will comfort you and nourish you, and I'm not in the place of God, and you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You look at the life of Joseph, there were any number of instances in his life where he could have given up his own control and acted like others in return, but he just never did. Here's the lesson we take from Joseph's life. 
Self-control is necessary because there are things that are out of your control. You wake up in the morning, you don't have a say on how this day is going to come from other people. All you can control is you. Joseph wasn't moved by his brothers. He wasn't moved by Miss Potiphar. He didn't and wasn't moved by anybody. What that means is you and I should not worry or be overwhelmed by that which we can't control. Instead, we need to stay focused on being faithful to God and controlling ourselves. In that conversation with Miss Potiphar back in Genesis 39 and verse number 9, part of Joseph's explanation for not sleeping with her, along with his master had been very good to him and he had entrusted him and she was married and there were many reasons given, but ultimately Joseph said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? When it came to exercising self-control, Joseph was committed to God, and that's who he was going to submit to, and that's who was going to control his actions. And he did not lose himself, even by the actions of others. You might ask yourself that the next time you're challenged with exercising self-control because someone else has done you wrong. You might ask yourself before you act, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Our second example of someone who practiced self-control, you couldn't have an example without our Lord. Jesus, the perfect example of self-control. Our Lord is described by Peter in 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23 in these words. He says, for even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his footsteps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, please understand he was reviled. The verse says, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he was threatened, he didn't return it. He threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. The Hebrew writer says of our Lord that he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Our Lord was tempted in the same ways we are tempted and yet he maintained his self-control, which means we can too. During his passion and the time that he was going to die for the sins of the world, several events take place in his life, not unlike Joseph. He was betrayed by one of his disciples. Matthew 26, 14 to 16 described Judas as looking for opportunity. By the time we get to Matthew 27, 47 through 50, he's found it. And now our Lord is praying in the garden. Judas is assembling with other people, and they're coming to the garden. And by the time our Lord finishes and ready to leave, there's Judas with the armed individuals betraying the Lord with a kiss. You hear our Lord talk to Judas at that time. You'll hear our Lord say, friend, doth thou betray the Son of Man with a kiss? I wonder what that word did to Judas as he heard it. Friend, are we? Are we still friends, Judas, as you stand here with all of these individuals coming out to take me? But it wasn't just Judas, no. After he was arrested, after Judas' betrayal, you go a little further into the night, and there's Peter warming himself by the fire. And there's our Lord on trial. And there's a maid asking Peter, aren't you with him? I don't know him. Oh, your speech. I, I, I'm sure I see. Aren't you with him? I don't know the man. Your speech is giving you away. You're truly one of them. 
and cursing and swearing, and I don't know the man. And in Luke's account, the Bible says Jesus turned and looked at Peter. He was spat upon. He was beat in the face. He was denied. He was denied justice by a judge. He knew for envy they delivered him. That's what Matthew 27, 18 says to Pilate. He knew it. Imagine having the judge sit on the seat who knows you're innocent. He knew it. His wife said, have nothing to do with this just man. He sent them the Herod, nothing found in him. Came back, to, came back to Pilate, nothing found in him. I find no fault, really. Still, he just washed his hands of the whole matter and said, see ye to it and have him crucified. What's the lesson of our Lord? There's something bigger than protecting ourselves. There's something bigger than defending ourselves. You have your Bibles. Look at Matthew 26 and listen to this interchange with Jesus and Peter there in the garden. In Matthew 26, as they are there and they have come to seize him, verse number 50 is where he refers to Judas as friend. In verse number 51, after they seize him, behold, one of those who, who were with Jesus reached and drew his sword, struck the slave of the high priest, and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put up your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father? He will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Verse number 54 is the question. How then will the scriptures be fulfilled? But thus it must be. It must happen this way, Peter. If we defend ourselves, how is the scriptures going to be fulfilled? If we call the angels and they destroy everybody, how are the scriptures going to be fulfilled? Now, it is certainly the case that you and I are not fulfilling scripture, but aren't we the light of the world? And aren't we the salt of the earth? If every time Christians go out into the world and they're done wrong and they lose their control, how will the world be salted? How will the world be lit? From where will the light come if Christians lose their control? If Christians defend themselves against all harm and insult and wrongdoing, and I won't take it, and I don't have to put up with it, and if we do that, how will the world be lit? How will the world be salted? Peter, what happens if I call the angels? We don't get to the cross. That's what happens. And if we don't get to the cross, we don't get redemption. And if we don't get redemption, all is lost. The plan of heaven is that Jesus died for the sins of the world. That's the plan. Christ came here for that plan. So the lying and the spitting, and the hitting, and the denials, and the betrayals, and the miscarriages of justice cannot thwart that plan. How will it happen if we don't do it? That's the lesson from the Lord. There's something bigger than self-defense. There's something more important. Before you act, ask yourself, how is God's going to be, has will going to be done if we don't do it? 
Well, let's talk about some who didn't practice self-control. What happens to us when we don't? In every area of life, here's what happens. In every area of life where self-control is not exercised, it leads to disaster. We hurt ourselves in every area. You pick the area, I'll offer a few. Let's say money. I'm told there are 27 parables in the New Testament, 16 of which deal with money. Imagine the Lord had one or two things to say about its importance. There are individuals in the, body, in the Bible who failed because of money. They just didn't act, practice self-control. One of those individuals named Achan, you know him well. Joshua chapter 7, Israel lost the battle because of Achan. God said there's sin in the camp. What did he do? Joshua chapter 7, Joshua said, son, what have you done? Give God the glory. He said, when I saw the Babylonian garments, the shekels of gold, the silver, I coveted them and I took them and I hid them in, my, in the earth. Balaam is another individual who succumbed to money. Balaam wanted more money. He loved the wages of unrighteousness. That's how Jude refers to him. Numbers 22 to 24 is where you'll find him. And then there's Judas we just talked about. He held the bag. He was stealing from it. And for 30 pieces of silver, he betrayed his Lord. When it comes to money, it's not how much you have. It is what you do with what you have. The widow gave two mites. The rich farmer tore down barns to build bigger barns and store more goods. One of them was approved. One of them was condemned. Another area when we don't practice self-control, we hurt ourselves, is our tongue. There is in the Bible a man who died because he lied. And it's kind of strange because obviously he didn't have to lie, but the lie he told did not lend itself or result in what he thought it would do. The man is an Amalekite. He can be found in 2 Samuel chapter 1 where you will find David asking about Saul and Jonathan. What's the news from the battlefield? That's what David wants to know. And this man comes up and he tells David, Oh, oh you're, you're thinking about Saul? You're concerned about Saul? Listen, here's what happened. I came upon him and I killed him. Upon hearing that, he thought David was going to rejoice. What he didn't know is David had great admiration for Saul, even though Saul didn't reciprocate. And David understood plainly that Saul was the Lord's anointed, which is why he never struck him. And so when this man told David he killed Saul, David asked him, how were you not afraid to lift up your hand against the Lord's anointed? And if you just keep reading, you probably won't make it to verse 10 to 12 before David tells one of his servants to kill that man because of the words from his own mouth. You killed the Lord's Actually, he didn't kill him, but he lied. And by his words, he was condemned. The Bible gives an entire chapter in the book of James, a five-chapter book with an entire chapter dedicated to warnings about the tongue. You want to talk about self-control, try it with that, that instrument. It's described as poison. It's described as a sword. It's described as life and death abiding in it. It's slippery. It can get away from us. There's a whole lot. It's like fire. It goes on and on. A serpent. It can do so much damage in such a short amount of time. James says we use it to 
to bless and praise God and then use it to curse men made in the image of God. But there's one person I'd like to talk about with regard to those who didn't practice it and one area in particular, and that's David. David didn't exercise self-control. He didn't exercise it in his sexual desires. The event is in 2 Samuel chapter 11. There are 27 verses in that chapter, and 23 of them have the name David in it. And that doesn't count the ones that might use words like him or his, but just David. 23 times in 27 verses, you'll read words like this. David sent. David tarried. David arose and he saw a woman. David sent and inquired. I'm just at verse 3. David sent messengers. The woman conceived and sent and told David. David sent to Joab. Joab's Uriah to David. David demanded of how the war did or Joab did. David said to Uriah, they told David. David said to Uriah. Uriah said to David. David said to Uriah. When David called him, David wrote a letter to Joab. Joab sent the letter to David. The messenger showed David. The messenger said to David. David said to the messenger. David sent and fetched her to his house and she became his wife. That chapter is not complete without the last phrase in the last verse. The thing that David did displeased the Lord. You know who watched all of that? The God of heaven saw and heard everything David did. Eventually, God sent a prophet to David, and David was confronted. The man that had done this is worthy of death, David said. He'll restore fourfold, David said. Imagine the silence in the room when Nathan said, you are the man, David. There are some lessons to be gleaned from David. Number one, a lack of self-control not only hurts us, it hurts others. Romans 14, about verse 7 down to verse number 11, tells us that no man is an island. No man lives to himself. No man dies to himself. Whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Everybody is connected to somebody. And so David's actions weren't done in a vacuum, and neither are ours. When we lack self-control, we not only hurt ourselves, we hurt others. Uriah was killed by David. Other soldiers were killed by David. Oftentimes in this section of scriptures read, people talk about David killing Uriah like that's the only person that died. No, no, David was willing to sacrifice other soldiers too to make sure he got Uriah. David sent other soldiers to the hottest battle. It really would have been odd if he only sent Uriah. So he sent other soldiers too. Then told the majority, leave them and retreat. Those other soldiers died too. David did that. David lost four sons as a result of this sin. Chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, the soil will never depart your house. And those lambs of which David spoke, he should restore fourfold. David did. He restored four sons. He lost four sons. It never did leave his house. When he writes Psalm 53, Psalm 51 rather, he says, I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. I imagine every time a son was lost, this came back to David's mind. If he didn't live with it every day and all day, over and over and over, it had to be replayed in his mind. This is the result of your actions. Road rage often takes two lives. You wake up in the morning, you hear the news, 
A person had road rage and they killed another person. Usually the person who died, well, they're gone, and then the person who did the killing, now they're in jail for the rest of their lives. Two people have lost their lives effectively, and not to mention their families. And why? Somebody lost control. Somebody didn't practice self-control. Another lesson from David is a lack of self-control empowers the world to speak evil of God. If you have your Bibles, look back at 2 Samuel 12. Of all of the passages in this section, and there are many that could be labeled disturbing and sad, there are many. As Nathan recounts for David what God feels about what David has done after that parable beginning down in about verse number eight, where Nathan begins to explain God's sentiments toward David, he says things like, I also gave you your master's house, your master's wives, your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, can you imagine hearing this from the God of heaven? I brought you from the sheepfold. You were a shepherd, nothing but a little boy tending sheep. And I took you to the pinnacle of Israel and set you as my king. And I gave you your master's house. I gave you his wife. I gave you everything. And David, if I didn't give you enough, I'd have just given you more. All you had to do was ask if that wasn't enough. But surely it was enough. But God said, I'd have given you more. The sadness begins in verse number nine. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord? And God just keeps going on about what David did here. As he gets near an end, down in verse number 14, you read these words and you talk about sad. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Who are they blaspheming? Not David. Oh no, they're not talking about how bad David is. They're talking about how bad the God of David is. The one prior to this event that Israel and David would have been exalting as greater than all the gods and telling all the people who would listen, our God is the ruler of heaven and earth. It's our God that's the greatest. It's our God that gives us the victory. It's our God. Oh, that's the one. Oh, it's your God? Now imagine when the world sees that God's king commit these actions. God says, David, you just, you just served me up on a platter. And now they blaspheme. When, when Christians lose control, when the church can't control herself, what does that say to the denominational world? What does that say to the world when the church acts like and worse than them? You know, they already say it. When we're on our best behavior, they say it. Y'all think y'all's the only ones right? You people think you're the only ones going to heaven? I mean, really, y'all think that y'all are that? But now, we actually never go around saying we're so special. That's not how we preach the gospel. We say he's so special. And we do say, though, because the Bible teaches he only has one people. Oh, well, we do teach that because the Bible teaches that. But that means those one people were called out of that world into a different relationship and called to be different people. 
And when those people act like those people, well, how many lights have been turned off? How much salt has lost its saltiness? Because saints didn't control themselves when they were in and around the world. A third lesson from David is a lack of self-control often includes others in our sins. Bathsheba was also culpable. And typically, we don't talk about her, we talk about David, and rightly so. David, if you will, is the star of this sad saga. But he didn't do it alone. And we have an instance in Joseph of how to respond when someone tries to come on to you sexually. Joseph is a great example. Bathsheba's nothing like Joseph. Where's the resistance? Where's the lack of inclusion? Where is the, I'm married. Where is the, my husband's one of your mighty men. Not so much as a word. But she knew she was married too. And though again David leads the charge, surely she's responsible for her actions as well. Well, let's talk about some practical matters then. How to learn to exercise self-control. How can we do that? What are some things we can do? Got a bunch of these and hopefully we can get through them all. Number one, accept, appreciate, and embrace the danger of not having self-control. Uh, folks, this is not a light thing here. This is not one of those, oh, it's not that big a deal. I'll get around to it. No, 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 it's exceedingly bad if you don't have self-control. A person without self-control is defenseless in the world. A person who is lacking self-control is in danger constantly. And that person is fit for destruction. Now that sounds grave, but that's exactly how the Bible describes it. Proverbs 25 and verse 28, the Bible says this, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Now, I want you to imagine for just a moment, in a world and in a time where your defense was your walls, imagine what you were without them. Well, you're in danger, and you are fitted for destruction. That's what you are, and you're defenseless. And that's exactly how the Bible describes it. In fact, here it in a few other renderings. The ASV says, he whose spirit is without restraint is like a city that is broken down and without walls. Another says, he whose spirit is uncontrolled is like an unwalled town which has been broken into. And then finally, this one almost as a commentary says, losing self-control leaves you as helpless as a city without a wall. You must embrace the significance and the meaning and the absolute essentiality of having self-control. Without it, you're a city without walls. You are defenseless. You're in danger and you will be destroyed. That is the reality of it. Number two, learn to delay instant gratification. We convince ourselves that we want it right now. We need to have it. I need to respond. I need it. And Every time we do that, it, it gets us into trouble. It got every one of these individuals in trouble. It got Eve into trouble. She saw the tree that it was good for food, a tree to be desired to make one wise. How long did she wait? She took it. Did she mull it over? Maybe she, no, 
No, she didn't think about it. She didn't go away from it. She, no, she took it. And she gave it to her husband with her, and he did eat right there in that moment. She saw it. She desired it. She took it. Well, what about Achan? I saw it. I coveted it. I took it. I hid it in the earth. What about David? He walked out. He saw her. He sent for her. He took her. You've got to deny this urge. You've got to learn to delay instant gratification. One person writing about finances and money actually said, before you make a big purchase, a big ticket purchase, take 30 days to think about it. Can you imagine that? Not a one of you can imagine that, can you? Can you imagine 30 days? I'm going to wait 30 days. No, the boat's in the garage, sir. The boat's here. I'm not waiting 30 days. I want it now. And so I have it. Number three, we have to learn to be content. Philippians 4, 11 and 12, the Apostle Paul says, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned. Please understand that. People act like these things are just going to fall on them. I'm just going to go pick them up. No, Paul says, I learned it. Why? Because generally speaking, if not universally, we are not content. It's not something that's natural. You have to learn to be content. Babies will eat as much milk as you will allow. It's you who stop the baby. You touch the stomach. Oh boy, you are going to bust if you, and the baby says, more please. I'm not stopping me. You're going to have to do that. And we then try to teach the children as they grow. That's enough. That's enough. No, you can't have any more. No, I want another piece of cake, another bowl of ice cream. Give me some more and some more and some more. You're going to eat yourself sick. I'm sure going to try. How much pizza are you going to eat, son? All of it. If we don't teach them, who's going to teach us? You think this stuff goes away when you're a child. It does not. That child has parents to stop them. What happens when the parents are removed and you become the child, you become the adult? Paul says, I learned whatever state I am in to be content. I learned it. I know how to abound. I know how to be abased. I learned that, Paul says. We must do the same. All way and every way, he says, I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, to abound and to suffer need. Those are spiritual things that's learned. How do you learn to be content? We have to stop focusing on what we don't have and start remembering and appreciating what we do have. Godliness with contentment, Paul says, is great gain. I'd, I'd love it if we could just use the same measurements of the Bible. The Bible uses constant measurements to help us understand things. What is the measurement? What's the scale for physical wealth and, 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 and acquiring things? What's the scale? The scale actually begins at birth and when you come into the world. That's what 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 10 says. It says godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. So it talks about coming in, it talks about coming out. 
What happens in between? Having food and raiment, let us be content. How are you then on the scale of Scripture? The scale of Scripture is zero and zero. Zero on the entrance, zero on the exit. And between the two, if you get food and shelter, Bible says stop right there. You should be good. Why should you be good with food and shelter? Because you're ahead of the game. Because you brought nothing in and you got food. You're a winner. You brought nothing in and you got shelter. You are two for two. You are over and above what you came with. And when you leave, you'll leave with nothing. If that's where the Bible places the standard of contentment, let me ask you this, how are you doing? You can see why sometimes people say, we live in the richest country in the world. And immediately they're told, well, I'm not rich. Just depends on the scale. Just depends on the scale. What's the measurement? No, I'm not rich if we're counting Bill Gates' money. But scripture doesn't count Bill Gates' money. It counts zero and zero. And it says, you should be content. Well, if that's where the scripture places contentment, I need to learn to be content because like you, I'm way above that. I'm way above that. Someone has pointed out and suggested that we are probably, in our country, probably more like the rich man than Lazarus. I'm not saying that's inherently a bad thing. I'm just saying we're more in line with faring sumptuously every day and eating and sitting in fine linen. Yes, no, maybe so. You agree, disagree? Some of y'all don't want to agree. It's still true. It's still true if you don't want to agree. It's still true. Number next, be thankful. Unthankfulness is at odds with contentment. Uh, pride can creep in. I deserve, I should have, I am old. Uh, we, we might become forgetful. Deuteronomy 6, verse 10 to 12 would be a good read. Uh, where God says, I'm going to give them, and he did. He gave Israel lands and wells and houses and all of these things. They didn't do any of that, and God says, I gave it to you. And, and then he says, be, beware lest you forget the Lord. And sometimes on our way up and at our arrival, we can forget it was the Lord who brought us here. And sometimes you can forget the Lord that blessed you in all of these ways. In fact, we sing a song I don't know how many of us actually do it, but it's a great song. When upon life billows you are tempest tossed, when you are discouraged thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. You know how long you'll be counting if you counted every blessing? But wouldn't it be a good exercise if we did? Count your many blessings, name them one by one by one. You'll be counting a long time. What would happen if I counted my blood? I'd probably become more thankful. I could learn from others. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram would be a good example. Number 16. It's not that they didn't have, it's just that they wanted more. There's a show on television. I watch it sometimes. I really don't know why I watch it now at this point in my life. I've seen enough episodes to know how this is going to go. But the show is called American Greed and Scams. 
And I've watched it and watched it and watched it, and uh, it's almost like a, a, a special that asks, where are they now? Uh, it's the same in the end. Uh, there's a rise, a fall, and then, oh, then, then, then they're back together in the band. This thing is much the same way. Somebody got it in their mind to scam people out of their money. And they come up with these elaborate schemes and hoaxes to do that. And that's only half the equation. I remember watching the show being so upset with these people. How, how can you live like that? How could you take people for all their money? And how could you, and I went on and on. And one day, I don't know how, quite to my surprise, I saw the rest of the title. It finally focused. It's American Scams and Greed. They go together. That's why it keeps happening. Somebody's greedy and somebody's a scammer. And why do the greedy, why does the person keep getting scammed? It's because they wanted more. Their greed opened them up to a scammer. I'm not blaming these people for these people's actions. I'm simply saying if these people had been content, these people wouldn't have had a chance. One man lost over $250,000 buying valuable nickels. You know what he wanted at the end of it all? Can you guess what he wanted? $250,000. It wouldn't it have been nice if they could have given it back. They never give it back. He had a bunch of nickels, but he didn't have $250,000. He had $250,000, but he wanted more. We have to learn to be content learn from other people's examples. James has another suggestion for us, not a suggestion, more a command and something we need to do, but it's another one of these things that might help. James says, be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. If you want some help with your self-control, speed up your hearing, slow down your speaking, and slow down your anger. That will help us with our self-control. If we want it in a mantra, a trotting form, it would go fast, slow, slow. Listen with speed and talk slowly. Be slow to talk. Wait on the talking. Let people finish before you talk. And don't get angry easily. Number six or seven, Paul says, think on good things. If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Think on good things that will help us with our self-control. Be conscious of the actions you're about to take and the consequences that follow. Sometimes we can just get into automatic behavior, as it's described, where you just keep doing things and you do it without any thought. It's not until sometimes you think about it that you can see in it, if I did that, this would happen. If I said that, that would happen. If I, and sometimes I'm, I, I ask people, couldn't you see where that was going? You didn't know that if you said that, that would respond, they would respond. You couldn't tell that if you did that, they would respond that way. Jesus says our actions come from our thoughts, and so the demand in Scripture is that we think before we talk and before we act. Finally, look to Jesus. If there is someone who can help us with self-control, it is Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, we are told, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. And then the writer says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against the room. I said, finally, I, that's penultimate, finally. Now, finally, 
finally with this thought. Address the elephant in the room of your life. Let me read you a couple of passages of what Paul said. Paul said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. But I keep my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. What is the point? The point is sometimes you hear sermons on self-control. Here's what happens. People have tendency to avoid the thing they should work on by focusing on the thing they're already successful in. The question tonight is this, what's controlling you right now? Go to work on that. Is it money? Can't stop spending? Is it food? I can't stop eating. Is it sex? Is it tongue? Is it anger? Is it jealousy? Is it envy? Gain control over the thing that's controlling you. And people often want to, they want to avoid working on the thing they need to work on by feeling good about the thing they've mastered. I don't have a problem with food, so I flaunt my control over food. Oh, no, no, I never deal with my lack of control over finances. I just march around the, uh, the, 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 the times we get together to eat, and I just show everybody how little I have on my plate and how I only eat one plate and how I have great portion control. I do that but I don't work on my lack of finances. Or maybe I've mastered my finances and I'm not so good with my food. Or maybe I've mastered my finances and my food, but my anger gets away from me, but I never deal with that because that's just the way I am. We have this tendency to just keep the elephant quiet. The problem is the problem. And if you want self-control in your life, don't worry about what somebody else is doing. Go to work on the issue that's controlling you and master that and then move on to other areas. You do that by prayer. You do that by studying God's word. You do that by being faithful today. I don't know of anything more applicable to human life as it relates to our relationship with God than self-control. Because in Genesis chapter 3, the first time we read of action on the part of humanity, God calls them both into question, has them admit what they have done, and then punishes them for doing it. And he does not accept excuses. There's probably nothing more important and more challenging in our lives than self-control. And every one of us is charged with that very action. Part of the control of our lives is that we submit to Jesus. And our Father sent his Son to die for our sins that we might have a relationship with him. And nobody can force you into the baptistry. Nobody should ever coerce you or trick you or manipulate you or do anything other than share the good news of Jesus with you. And then it's up to you to make up your mind and believe it, to change the course and the tone of your life and to confess the name of Jesus and be baptized.
based upon your obligation to believe in Jesus and repent, to confess his name, Jesus says you must be baptized and then he'll save you. Failure to do that on your part will cost you your soul and nobody else's. And so we invite anybody who needs to do that to do that. And as we've sometimes referred to the second law of pardon, if you will, for any child of God that's wandered away and needs to come home, only you can. It would take another sermon or another 50 sermons to talk about how sometimes God's children wander away from the fold and then try to blame the fold that they wandered away from. The church is not responsible for your soul. You are, because you are the church. And if you've lived in a way that's not pleasing to your Heavenly Father, then you should come home to Him and He will have you back. We can help you in any way. We invite you to come as we stand and as we sing. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Though your sins be as scarlet, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as shall be as white as snow. He'll forgive your transgressions and remember them no more. He'll forgive your transgressions and remember them no more. Look unto me Said the Lord, your God, he'll forgive your transgressions, he'll forgive your transgressions, and remember them no more, and remember them no Thank you, Eric. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so moved by your word and what you teach us that we oftentimes don't listen to. But to know that through you comes a wisdom that we need to, to hear and to, to learn and to apply to our life. And Father, we thank you for the love that you have for us, that you are willing to help us and to guide us on our path to you, to put us in the right direction and to do the right things. Father, thank you for your love and for this message tonight that we have heard. Bless it to our hearing and bless it into our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat>